Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast, where we look at the trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Larry Guthrie, Director of Communications for ACG Global, and I'm here with Katie Mulligan, the editor of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Katie, what's the focus of this week's podcast? Hey, Larry. This week, we are drilling into trade issues. There has been a ton of news about the steel and aluminum tariffs, tariffs on China, retaliatory tariffs. So I wanted to unpack each of these individually and put them into context for middle market businesses. To do that, I spoke with Michael McAdoo, a senior advisor with the Boston Consulting Group, where he's a member of the Global Advantage Practice and the Industrial Goods Practice. Michael has spoken at events held by ACG chapters in Toronto and New York focused on cross-border trade issues, so uh, he was kind enough to call into the podcast to offer some more insight. That's great. Um, And I know that a huge key trade area that's uh, being overshadowed by tariffs right now is NAFTA. Did, Did Michael speak on that? He did, and he has a really interesting perspective on that issue. He lives in Canada now, but over his career, he's lived and worked in all three NAFTA countries. At one point, he even ran a manufacturing company in Mexico with 250 employees that frequently shipped cross-border. When we talked, he discussed the status of renegotiating the agreement and what it would mean if, if the U.S. were to withdraw. Wow, so there's certainly a lot to unpack here. Um, I know a lot of business owners are eager to understand what they can do to prepare for the risks uh, you know, presented by these various trade issues. So let's hear what Michael has to say. Here's Katie speaking with Michael McAdoo. Michael, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Trade has been dominating the news headlines recently, so I'd like to ask you to give an overview of the major issues and what's at stake. So to start, can you talk about the steel and aluminum tariffs imposed by the Trump administration and which industries stand to be most heavily impacted? Sure. I mean, we're talking about two really important metals, uh, both of which are used uh, globally and both, I think, have their uh, unique characteristics. Uh, steel is in a global overcapacity situation, largely due to big additions by China to its capacity in the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Uh, and as a result, the U.S. Uh, share of capacity and production has been falling in steel. Uh, aluminum is a similar story, uh, U.S. capacity also shrinking, um, very little capability to support the domestic demand uh, in the U.S. And that's largely because the U.S. has higher production costs than other uh, countries that have access to less expensive energy, uh, places like uh, Canada, uh, places like Russia. Um, And the Trump administration was looking uh, since the campaign, really, the presidential campaign, for ways to support what we call the upstream production of these raw metals. Um, And so they're trying to find a way to do that. Uh, What they found was within the U.S. trade law, something called Section 232, and this is a a section within the U.S. trade law which allows um, a U.S. administration to put on tariffs if it believes that um, these products are critical to U.S. national security, that the ability to produce these things domestically is critical to um, U.S. national security. So there's a, a, a process that goes on where the Department of Commerce launches an investigation, the Department of Defense, uh, being the Pentagon, is also involved. And that took place uh, through uh, 2017 and into the early part of 2018. Um, and what was concluded by the study was that uh, U.S. national security was at risk. The president declared that tariffs of 10% on aluminum and 25% on steel would be imposed. 
Now, initially, uh, the president said that certain U.S. allies, such as Canada, Mexico, and the European Union, would be excluded. And that, um, I think, would not have been so difficult for industry because, um, you know, Canada's a, the biggest supplier of aluminum. Uh, the EU and Mexico supply steel, so there were chances to get these metals from other places. A lot of the steel that was previously coming in from China had actually been hit with some other U.S. trade restrictions around subsidies and, and anti-dumping measures, so it wasn't as if there was a lot of Chinese steel coming in uh, anyway. But then, uh, in a sort of a surprise move, uh, it was decided that, in fact, those uh, countries would be included. Uh, obviously, this didn't sit well with uh, the Europeans and the Canadians, uh, who argued, you know, hey, we're your security partners. Um, Canada and the U.S. have a long, undefended border, um, you know, allies together in North American air defense. And, of course, almost all of the EU countries are also members of NATO, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is a transatlantic security arrangement that was set up uh, after the uh, Second World War. So uh, there's concern on these uh, about these tariffs on multiple levels. Obviously, using national security as a pretext for these things creates a precedent that other countries could use if they want to block U.S. goods, and it could lead to sort of a undermining of some of the key principles of WTO. Obviously, from a diplomatic relations perspective, uh, countries like Canada and the European countries did not take kindly to being referred to as security threats to the United States, and you saw those tensions at the recent G7 summit. So there has been a lot of concern about this, uh, certainly at the diplomatic and, and geopolitical level. When you think about the economic impact, which I'm sure is where your question wants to go, let's talk first about pricing. Uh, first of all, pricing for both metals uh, jumped almost instantaneously uh, when the tariffs were announced, and they jumped up to the uh, price level of a, a product plus this tariff. Even domestically produced uh, steel and aluminum uh, just jumped up in price because they knew that the competition coming in would be similarly priced. So that's known as a price umbrella effect. And what we've seen is a number of people that consume these metals in their in their production processes have seen you know cost increases, um, you know um, notices from their suppliers saying that you know this is the last material I can send at this price going forward. Here's my new price if you still want my my material. So it's been pretty significant. And what we're seeing is the impact is really uh, the producers are getting this windfall profit through higher pricing. But a lot of the industries that consume these metals are seeing their costs go up. And that's, you can think about things that use um, these metals, but automotive, machinery and equipment, construction, uh, aerospace in terms of aluminum, uh, certain consumer packages uh, such as soft drinks, um, you know, beer, uh, certain pharmaceutical packaging that uses aluminum. All these industries risk seeing uh, cost increases in their cost base. And whatever portion uh, these metals represent at their total cost, will go up by 10 or 25%, depending on which metal we're talking about. So that I think the downstream implications are pretty significant when you look at these tariffs. What I would also say is that in terms of the impact, there are certain categories and grades of these metals that are not even made in the U.S. So um, even if the domestic product had not been priced up, there's just no alternative um, to these for these products than getting non-U.S. supply. So this is a problem. There, there is a process by which companies or groups of companies can seek a so-called product exclusion from the Department of Commerce, but that application process is heavily backlogged with so many firms trying to protect themselves 
so that's one concern is just, uh, you know, how long does it take to get my specific product excluded on the basis that it's no, not actually made in the U.S. anymore or was never made in the U.S. and it's a certain grade of aluminum or steel. And then the other unusual impact is if you are someone that is in a business that is, you know, manufacturing these goods, um, if you think about, um, you know, automotive, for example, um, if I'm a machine shop or a machine company that has um, machining capabilities, let's say, in um, two NAFTA countries, well, once I convert the steel or aluminum into a component for automotive, that component comes through uh, duty-free under NAFTA. So suddenly, if you're uh, sitting in a Canadian or Mexican machine shop, you don't pay the 25% tariff or the 10% tariff on your metal cost. And then once you've transformed that material into some component, it enters the U.S. duty-free. So there's a, a lot of folks in the in the downstream that are saying, hey, we might actually shift production outside of the U.S. where we can still obtain these metals huh, uh, duty-free and then ship the finished product into the U.S. So we're seeing a lot of unusual supply chains, um, you know, effects uh, being shown here. And I think these are things that are very, very hard to contemplate uh, once you start uh, picking and choosing which things you want to put tariffs on. Um, so another pressing trade issue is the dispute between the U.S. and China, which looks like it could be edging toward a trade war. Can you weigh in on what's happening and, and the potential impact for companies? Yeah, sure. I mean, China is a very important case because this particular trade dispute that's brewing uh, is really against a backdrop of rising Chinese power and declining U.S. relative power uh, economically and in other ways in the world. And, um, you know, China has a unique development model uh, where they combine, you know, essentially a, a, a governance system based on a single party ruling the country, uh, much higher percentage of state-owned industries than other uh, countries uh, would have, and they've obviously had access to a tremendous um, pool of available labor uh, over the past many decades. So they've been able to manage significantly higher growth rates than other parts of the world, and they're now the world's second largest economy, having recently overtaken Japan, and uh, by some projections will be bigger than the, the U.S. economy in the next uh, few decades. In addition, China has been behaving differently internationally than many previous great powers when you look at how they have entered uh, places like Africa in terms of the infrastructure investments that they've made there, in terms of some of their policies around their neighborhood in, in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, um, you know, sort of um, staking out some territorial claims that are much greater than um, would normally be permitted under international uh, law of the sea. So there's this rivalry, uh, which is a backdrop to this. Um, and um, the U.S. has had a number of um, concerns about China over many years, and this has been manifested in different negotiations and different WTO disputes. But one of the key ones uh, is uh, China's attitude towards intellectual property. The U.S. argues that China um, exchanges um, market access for uh, unique access to Western companies and U.S. companies' uh, intellectual property. And this whole dispute really got started um, a little less than a year ago uh, in August when the U.S. administration launched um, a big investigation under part of the U.S. trade law called Section 301. And they looked at uh, Chinese practices uh, related to intellectual property. This is also done by the Department of Commerce. And the purpose of Section 301 is to establish whether a foreign country has, has been somehow uh, subsidizing its industry through different uh, policies that it has. And there's a very 
exhaustive report um, that the Department of Commerce put out. But its conclusion was that, in fact, yes, uh, China has had a very systematic approach to um, obtaining intellectual property, and this constitutes a subsidy, and a um, economic value was assigned to that uh, subsidy. And um, on the basis of this Section 301 report, the administration can impose tariffs to compensate for that um, for that alleged subsidy. And so the current, you know, 50 billion of product that has been identified is a result of that process within the U.S. It's important to understand that starting point because when China retaliates with an equivalent dollar value, the U.S. administration says, wait a minute, we put the 50 billion, the tariffs on 50 billion worth of stuff to make up for your already, you know, subsidizing industry. You can't come back at us now and put 50 billion of tariffs on our stuff because we were just trying to level the playing field through our 301. Of course, China doesn't accept that. China says we don't uh, control who gets intellectual property. We're not at all responsible, as you suggest, and therefore you're simply tariffing our products. So this is very complex right now where the U.S. has identified a number of uh, different uh, Chinese imports to the U.S. and uh, put very high tariffs on them, 25%. And China has responded in an equivalent dollar amount, uh, putting tariffs on U.S. goods. Now, what's important to know here is that the types of goods that have been targeted by the two countries are very different. Uh, when you look at U.S.-China trade, uh, the U.S. is buying a lot of electronics and uh, machinery-type products uh, from China, and those are the largest contributors uh, to the U.S.-China trade deficit, whereas China's buying a lot of agricultural products and also aircraft uh, from the U.S. In fact, the, um, the number one product that um, the U.S. sends to China is actually soybeans, and the number two product is, is commercial aircraft. So what you've seen is China targeting U.S. soybeans, while the U.S. is targeting a number of um, electronics and machinery categories. But I would simply say stopping short of some of the more uh, obvious ones that would hit consumers so they haven't yet put a tariff on flat screen TVs or, or, or mobile phones. You know, you mentioned China's retaliation. Are you seeing other countries impacted by U.S. tariffs beginning to retaliate? And, and what's the effect that you're seeing from that? If we go back to the steel and aluminum tariffs, um, already Canada and the European Union have retaliated uh, with tariff sets of their own. Uh, Mexico, I believe, is publishing a list uh, early in July. Um, again, all these countries argue that it was um, you know, improper of the, of the U.S. to put these tariffs on the base of national security. Therefore, they're going to retaliate to try to dissuade the U.S. or have the U.S. change its mind. And again, you're seeing that um, you know, trade wars don't only go vertically within an industry, they go horizontally across industries. And when people are looking at which, when countries are looking at which um, products to target for tariffs, they want to have maximum political impact on the opponent country and they want to have minimum economic impact on themselves. So they tend to look at products where they have an alternative source of supply, right? So, um, you know, the, uh, the European Union, for example, in response to its, uh, the U.S. tariffs on, on steel and aluminum, has targeted motorcycles. And that has a few different effects. You know, the, the, the number one uh, U.S. brand of motorcycles export is Harley-Davidson. So that's an iconic U.S. product. And the European Union itself manufactures motorcycles by the likes of BMW and Ducati and others. And so they can, they can you know, 
they'll still have motorcycles to buy, whereas if you're only buying a commodity from one country, that's not a good one to target because you end up hurting uh, your own consumers. The other, the other one you see is people targeting, countries targeting products with a certain political constituency. So uh, countries would look at who are the leaders in Congress, um, uh, in the Senate and the House of Representatives, and try to find targets that are um, you know, important economic contributors to those constituencies. So uh, on both the Canadian and the European lists, you see evidence of this, um, both Canada and Europe uh, targeting Kentucky bourbon, which is in the home state of Mitch McConnell, who's the Republican uh, majority leader in the Senate. In the case of Canada, uh, targeting cranberries, which are made in the constituency of Paul Ryan in, uh, in Wisconsin. He's the leader of the Republicans in the House. So you do see countries doing this, and they do tend to go for other sectors. And so the poor cranberry guys and the poor Kentucky bourbon guys are saying, hey, we didn't do anything. We're just getting hit here. Um, and the same is true of the soybean producers. They're quite concerned. Yeah, caught in the crossfire. Um, another important topic that's on the minds of uh, business owners right now is the North American Free Trade Agreement. What's the status of renegotiating NAFTA, and, and what are the sticking points with, with that trade agreement? Yeah, I mean, the NAFTA renegotiation is another uh, whole file, very complex. Um, you know, NAFTA started out in 1988 as an agreement between the U.S. and Canada, and then uh, Mexico joined in a separate negotiation in the early 90s, and that was, uh, uh, you know, signed back in, uh, in late 1993, early 1994. And uh, a great number of industries have built a, a supply chain uh, across the three countries. Uh, based on those NAFTA rules, and I think no no industry more so, in fact, than the automotive industry. So, um, you know, um, President Trump, when he was candidate Trump, said he wanted to renegotiate this. He didn't believe it had been good for the United States. And so they kicked off formal negotiations in the month of August. And at that time, they said they'd be done by Christmas. Then they said they'd be done by the end of January. Then they said by the end of March. Then they said by the end of May. Um, and now we're, we're into uh, multiple rounds of negotiation and still um, big impasses on certain topics. Um, it's an unusual negotiation because normally when you sit down with someone to negotiate, you've got some things that you want and some things that you're prepared to give. And, and what the U.S. Trade Representative, Mr. Lighthizer, has said is that the U.S. in fact has nothing to give. It only wants Canada and uh, Mexico to, to things in negotiation. And it's been, very, it's been a very difficult dynamic uh, in this, in these talks, um, some of the things that the U.S. is asking for uh, are not common in other trade agreements. Uh, in fact, um, Mexico and Canada call them the unconventionals. You know, the first one has to do with some of the rules around automotive trade and how you would determine whether auto parts and finished vehicles could could move duty free within the within the free trade area. There's another one uh, which is known as the sunset clause, where the U.S. is asking that. Unless reactivated, NAFTA would automatically sunset or expire after five years unless the parties agreed to renew it. And that, of course, would not create a, a good climate for uh, investment, business investment, because you'd like to know that if you make an investment in some plant and equipment or in a new distribution agreement, that the, the rules under which you're making that will still exist. And yeah, so if, if you look around the world in, in free trade agreements, there's no such thing as one that automatically expires unless it's renewed. These things are normally perpetual or permanent, um, you know, and, and, and tend to be built upon and made uh, deeper and broader than they are. And so that, that's certainly creating a, a, um, 
a, a poor climate for business investment. So I think that's another one that's a big concern. Um, and then trade agreements also have things around dispute settlements. So if, if someone has an issue um, between a company and a government or between the two governments or um, between a given company and certain trade law actions like we were just talking about, there's different chapters in NAFTA that deal with that. And uh, the U.S. Uh, has proposed removing all of those chapters. Um, and that's something that is also quite unusual in a free trade agreement. And the last one I'd say that's causing some concern is uh, around government procurement. So um, normally under free trade agreements, there's some opportunity to access uh, public procurement contracts in the other party's uh, jurisdiction. Hmm. And there's actually also an agreement, a WTO agreement on government procurement, where a number of member countries have signed that, including the U.S. Uh, and Canada. And um, what the U.S. has said is actually we will open our public procurement market only to the dollar amount uh, that U.S. countries have access to, or U.S. companies have access to within Canada and Mexico. So if you think about the total GDP of NAFTA, the U.S. is roughly 80%, and Canada and Mexico are roughly 10% each. So what they're saying is if, if you know, um, if U.S. procurement is $100, we'll only give um, Canada and Mexico access to $20, the other $80 we want to reserve for U.S. companies. And so that's just a structural challenge to the other two countries. And in fact, it's, it's less privilege than those countries have under the WTO agreement. So it's kind of strange to think that someone like Canada would agree to that. So these are some of the issues that have been hanging around since last fall, the fall of 2017, where there just seems to be very little common ground. There's been some uh, progress made on the automotive side, but it's a pretty complicated uh, set of rules that would look at how much people are making within given factories, how much steel and aluminum content you have from North American facilities in cars, and, and much more complex than the existing uh, rules. But in fact, there's no negotiations going on right now, and that's for a couple of different reasons. Number one is there's a Mexican election on July 1st, and um, if you believe the polls, um, there's a certain candidate who's far, far ahead, normally 20 points or more, depending on the polls, and that is not the candidate of the current governing party. So um, that swearing in only happens in December, so there's a long period of, um, call it lame duck, if you will, for that existing Mexican administration. And then the other challenge is there's U.S. midterm elections happening in November this year. The only window they had to bring something to Congress, given the different time frames required under the Trade Promotion Authority Act, well, the window for this existing Congress to approve an eventual NAFTA deal, which it would have to do, has passed. They were hoping to get it in between uh, November 4th and, and, and any swearing in that would happen in January um, 2019, but that window has also closed if you add up all of the required notification periods. So at this point, there's no live negotiations going on. Um, occasionally, the, the negotiators will chat. Um, but these big issues remain uh, unresolved. Um, you know, so uh, it's, it's, it's a very uncertain situation for NAFTA. And in terms of industries, who are the winners and losers if, if NAFTA were to go away, or at least if the, if the U.S. were to pull out? Well, I think, you know, let's just look at that scenario. So, the you know, the president might have the authority to, to uh, pull the U.S. out of NAFTA. The Trade Promotion Authority uh, Act, under which this, these types of agreements are signed, you know, under the U.S. Constitution, of course, Congress has jurisdiction over, um, over foreign trade. But the, 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 the act was 
framed contemplating the president signing new trade agreements to open new markets. There was no provision for the president to reverse out of a trade agreement. So the president can certainly sign an executive order. It's not clear that that would pass a court challenge as being allowed under the Trade Promotion Act. Hmm. But moreover, um, even after President Clinton signed the original NAFTA back in 1993, there was something called the NAFTA Implementation Act, which had to go through Congress. And only Congress can unwind an act of legislation, uh, not executive orders. So, uh, so just you know, it's, it's not as easy as uh, as uh, signing a document and suddenly NAFTA goes away. Hmm. But let's say that it, let's say that it did, and let's say that the president um, signed an executive order. Let's say that Congress didn't want to stand in his way. Well, then the question after NAFTA is, what do you fall back to? Because all three countries in NAFTA are members of the WTO, and the WTO creates a set of rules around trade. They're not quite as open as as, uh, uh, as NAFTA rules, but there's still, you know, there is still some legal basis for commerce to happen, and there are tariff rates that each of those countries has for other uh, WTO members. And so, what you see when you actually look at that is that different different industries have different tariff rates under the WTO arrangements versus under NAFTA. And in some cases, they're exactly the same. There are some things that are duty-free under WTO, and they're also duty-free under NAFTA. So an example would be aerospace components. Um, There's something called the WTO Agreement on Trade and Civil Aircraft, and all of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico are signatories. So technically, whether there's NAFTA or no NAFTA, as long as there's this WTO Civil Aviation Agreement, then these products can still move duty-free, so probably no direct impact. But... If you double-click, well, actually, that's the finished component. A lot of the stuff that goes into those components would, in fact, attract tariffs under a WTO scheme. So it's important to understand for each component you're talking about, what are the what are the up, upstream uh, impacts on that? What are the things from the supply chain that could be affected? And what we've, what we've said at Boston Consulting Group is you need to look also at which categories are driving the U.S. trade deficit. You know, uh, certain things like automotive, which is the biggest contributor to the U.S. trade deficit with NAFTA, well, it actually has very low tariffs under WTO. The U.S. WTO tariff on passenger cars is only 2.5%. So if NAFTA goes away, you pay a 2.5% tariff on cars. It's not pleasant to pay a 2.5% tariff, but you wouldn't move your factory from Mexico back to the U.S. or from Canada back to the U.S. for a 2.5% tariff, because usually your cost advantage would be greater than that. So... Hmm. What we've said in, in publications, which um, your listeners can get online at, at bcg.com, is that there's actually certain sectors that we think could be highly suspect or, or, or highly likely to get um, further trade protection, and automotive is a great example. And in fact, what the administration recently launched was another one of these Section 232 national security investigations related to automotive. and. Uh, you know, the argument will be put forward that um, a healthy automotive industry is essential to national security. Therefore, we have to put a higher tariff on automobiles than the, the 2.5% we have now. So you really have to look at it sector by sector. Uh, but certain sectors that are characterized by um, a high trade deficit and a low tariff under WTO, we think those sectors are likely to be um, targets for further um, protectionist actions um, by the U.S. administration. And for middle market business leaders, what should be they be doing right now to protect their companies amid these trade uncertainties and and uh, as they're trying to think about mitigating risk? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is you have to understand your value chain uh, at a 
deeper level than you probably have had to in the past, because all of these questions of, of tariffs uh, and, and trade protection is all about different categories of products. And, you know, there are thousands of categories in the tariff code, not just the finished product that you might ship out, but also all of the input products. And um, I can give you a really interesting example. Um, uh, a friend of mine owns a, a manufacturing business. It's a s quite small company. Um, call it, you know, in the mid, um, mid tens of millions in revenue. And he makes uh, some uh, industrial equipment that uses steel. And his equipment is used in, in automotive, and in fact, it, it, it runs around on rubber wheels. So under the, under the tariff classifications, it's under automotive, which means it's coming in. He, he built them in Canada, and he sells them in the U.S. So it's coming in under a NAFTA preference, a NAFTA zero-rated tariff. But technically, in order to get that NAFTA preference right now, you need to have 62.5% North American content in your vehicle. And in the past, he simply shipped them across the border and certified that it's, you know, um, NAFTA compliant and there's been no problem. But um, as early as last fall, uh, when his vehicles got to the border, U.S. Customs said, well, tell me about your, your, your steel content. And he said, oh, well, my steel I get from a distributor uh, in Canada. And then the, the customs agent said, well, where does the distributor get the steel? He said, I don't know. I just need steel of this thickness and this characteristic, and that's what he ships to me. And, you know, it's built to a standard, and I don't actually even know what country it comes from. And the person said, well, you need to start knowing that, because if that steel isn't coming from North America, then we can't count that as, as, as North American content. So you may send the check to or the e-transfer to a firm in your country, but they might be buying that from another source. And so it's important to double-click on your supply chain and understand for your major components uh, where, is, where are these things coming from, because that's what will get the... Uh, the customs authorities interested is where, where, where the components. Also from a distribution perspective, understanding how your product or, or a particular products gets, gets distributed uh, and are there, are there obstacles to that in terms of customs compliance going into different countries. If, if NAFTA were to go away, well, there's a whole different set of tariffs that Canada and Mexico have. So if you're a U.S. business that's exporting to Canada or Mexico, then you could imagine um, you, know, you would have new tariffs that you haven't had to pay before because simply reverting to WTO means that certain, in certain cases tariffs could be there that, that weren't there before. So understanding the value chain is very important. Um, I think that um, flexibility is also very important, developing alternative sources of supply that can help you meet certain country content um, hurdles. Um, but these are things that businesses ha haven't had to think about for a very long time, and now it's becoming you know, front and center in many industries. And for, for someone looking to better understand these issues and, and the risks that it potentially poses to their business, what resources would you recommend for someone to get more information? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, most industries have um, a, an industry association in Washington, and they normally look at some of the different um, impacts. I know there's an overall one called the Business Roundtable, which is for larger firms, but then by sector there are different ones, whether it's... Um, you know, manufacturing or, or, um, or construction or, um, you know, automotive or aerospace. There's all different associations for these types of manufacturing um, industries. So they're a good source. Um, I would also encourage people to read, uh, read widely on this. Um, certainly we publish uh, a lot of material on this as, as a consulting firm and there are other um, think tanks and institutes that also publish. So I think that's important. Um, and then I think you just, I would encourage people to, to get their cost accountants 
understanding these questions because that's where uh, that's where the rubber's going to meet the road is what is your value chain where are you sourcing where are you producing and where are you selling you need to know that in the level of a granularity that has just simply uh, not been required in the past great well all good suggestions i think that's um i think that's a good place to end it thanks for joining me on the podcast michael hey it's my pleasure anytime Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to the past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. After you've rated the show, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A. 